At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Well, happy Father's Day. What an incredible day as we celebrate fathers in our life, dads in our life. Um, This uh, day is kind of bittersweet for me uh, because for me, uh, this is the first Father's Day for me that uh, my dad's not here. Um, this last August, uh, my dad uh, went home to be with the Lord. He, he battled uh, some illnesses, and uh, we lost him this last August. And so uh, just knowing that he's with Jesus, that he's in a better place, uh, brings us so much peace. But as I, I thought about my dad today, I, I was just kind of waking up this morning and thinking about my dad, thinking about who he was. My dad was born down in, in Clawson, Michigan, and, and he was blessed to be raised in a Christian home. My grandparents were, were good Christian people, brought him to church every Sunday. My dad was raised in a Christian home, brought up to, to know who Jesus was, and then met my mom in high school. Uh, they started dating and, and then got engaged later. And um, my, they were, you know, my parents were awesome. They, uh, they had four boys, one girl. I don't know how they did it. But man, uh, what, what a, a life that my dad lived. And one of the things that I'll always remember about my dad is, man, my dad taught me so many things. My dad taught me how to work. He taught me how to have patience and how to have grace. And sometimes he taught me the things not to do, Right? Because nobody's perfect. My dad had failures just like anyone else, and my dad had things that he was good at. And you take the good and the bad, and you learn from those. And we, we imitate fathers. We imitate dads in our life. And the truth is, is that everyone in this room has a dad. Everyone. But a father figure, what a father figure looks like in your life, what that father figure maybe is to you. Many of you may have grown up with a father that, that was in your home, and, and your dad was awesome, and he taught you things, and it was your father, right? Some of you grew up with a, a grandparent as your father. Some of you may have grown up in, in a divorced home where, where your stepdad was that father figure to you, or maybe it was someone else, an uncle or a pastor or whatever that may look like, that we all have those people in our lives that might be a father figure to us. And I want to address the elephant in the room. Some of you may have grown up in a home where it was a verbally abusive or, or maybe physically abusive home where your father wasn't the greatest. Some of you may have grown up in a home where you lost your father at a young age and you don't remember him. Maybe he left at a young age. Maybe he passed away. But the reality is, is that each one of us have a different image of what a father is to us today. And today we're taking a little break from our Revelation series and we're doing a series on, on what it means to be a father, a, a dad in our lives. And, and what I, I want us to see today, what I want us to notice today is that no matter what image of a father we might have, no matter what image you, you've seen in your life, that God shows us how a father cares for his children 
Many of us have grown up in the church, and many of us know what that means of, of what God the Father is and what He is in our lives and how He cares for our children. But, but what does that look like in real time? How does God the Father actively reveal His love for His children? How does God care for His children? And today, we'll be looking in Psalm 103. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, 103, verses 6 through 14, as we'll see how God cares for His children. When we look at psalms, psalms, these are, these are songs or, or poetry that are written in the Old Testament. They're, they're things that they wrote as hymns sometimes. Many times um, the, the writers would sing praise or, or thanksgiving or, or these type of things as they write these and they're worshiping or lamenting or praising or giving thanksgiving towards. Many years ago I got engaged to my beautiful wife. Kristen, and I had this incredible idea that I was going to write her a song. I played a little guitar back then, and I was like, I'm going to write her a song, and I'm going to sing it to her on our wedding day. Yeah, you laugh. <laughs> so did many of my friends. As I wrote this, and I'm trying to write this song, and how I feel about her, and how I love her, and, and how I want to sing her praise, all these things, right? Well, it got down to the week before, and she doesn't even really know this, but it got down to the week before the wedding, and I was literally like, I, I can't sing this. I am not a writer. I can't do this. And so I scrapped it. I was like, you know what? We're just going to let the, the marriage go how it goes, and, and I don't need to sing this. I'm going to go ahead and scrap it, and I haven't picked up a guitar since. No. But this is what we'll see today. But these writers are way better than me. They're way better at doing this than me. In Psalm 103, we see King David here who's writing this. He's writing a song or hymn of praise towards God. And this song, this hymn, it talks about how great God's mercy and love is for his people. This is one of, the, uh, one of four psalms that reflect on God's dealing with his people from creation to exile. And David here, he's recalling that Israel's survival during the time of Moses is ultimately due to God's steadfast love because of God, because of God's mercy because of his grace, this is the only way that Israel survived. And what we'll see today is that there are three things in this passage that reveal ultimately how God cares for his children. And the first thing that I want us to see today is that we are the beneficiaries of his mercy. We benefit from God's mercy on us. Let's look. Verse 6 through 11 say this, or through 12 say, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And then we skip to verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I want to pull these verses apart one by one for a minute here and look at them a little bit one by one. In verse 6, the first thing that we see is that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. This word righteousness here. 
means that he, he puts straight not only the record, right, but the whole situation and the people concerned, that he vindicated them. He cleared their name, all of their blame or, or suspicion, he cleared it. But not only that, he works out righteousness for them. And then you look at verse 7, and, and then in, he says this, these two little words here, he says his ways and his acts, that he's making them known, right? His ways and his acts, that he's actually making them known. This is something that we see uh, he displays in Exodus with miracles, right? But also with Israel in the wilderness and on Mount Sinai, if we look at Deuteronomy 8, uh, 2 through 3, it says this, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the thing we see here is that he might humble you, right? That he's testing you. That he might make you know in Deuteronomy 8. It was the training that he's trying to do. The training of sons and daughters. And then we see in verse 8, and then he says this. This is literally the image of God in Exodus 34. When he passes before Moses, he says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Man, what an image, right? He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That he's merciful and gracious. And then we see in verse 9 and 10, he continues where he says, He will not always chide. Now, what does that mean? It's meaning to speak out in angry or displeasing rebuke, to chide. There's a contrast here between God's generosity and the heavy-handed uh, wrath of man here. See, man loves to keep his quarrels going or to continue in his grievances, right? He loves to keep those going. But when we see God who is wronged here, he not only tempers his wrath, but he also tempers his just justice, as we see in verse 10, he says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, meaning we didn't get what we deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Again, we see his mercy. Man, people love to fight, don't they? I think it's just in people that a lot of people love to argue. We love a good competition. We love uh, um, seeing a good fight, whether it's a, a competition in football or basketball or maybe it's a, a boxing match or UFC fight. We love to see a good fight. It even shows that if you Google fist fight, don't do it, but if you Google fist fight, how many videos will pop up of people just Jerry Springer in, in the streets like full-on fist, fist fights, right? It's, an, it's crazy because what happens when you actually see a fight in public? People just start surrounding. They start surrounding it and they're yelling, fight, fight, and, and it's like crazy. People love this. They, they all pull out their phones immediately, right? And they just start videoing it. Somehow we are drawn to, to this type of thing in the midst of our tendencies to sin 
to quarrel, to fight. God shows His mercy and His grace. See, people tend to lean into quarrels, chides, and fights. Verse 12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east from the west, He removes our transgressions from us. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See that little phrase right there where it says, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. See, God gave us the ultimate example of what forgiveness is through His Son on the cross, right? As we know the rest of the story, that Jesus went to the cross, that He paid the sin, He paid the price for our sin, that He gave His life on the cross willingly for us, that He he gives us this ultimate example of what forgiveness is. By knowing this, by experiencing this as believers, we're also called to forgive one another. See, we're also called to imitate what Jesus did in forgiving us. We're called to forgive one another, to show mercy towards each other, to show grace towards each other. We're called to show this because we're called to be imitators of our Father. And I ask, if I was to ask around to people in your life, to people that know you personally, would they say that you show mercy and grace? Would they say that you show this kind of love towards others? See, I know it can be hard sometimes, right? To show love and mercy and grace towards others can be really hard at moments in our lives. And if we try to do this on our own, we're going to fail, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, to be our guide and to be our prompter that that helps us through these moments where it's hard to forgive someone, where it's hard to show someone mercy and grace, that, that we have the Holy Spirit. That's the good news as as you're a believer in Jesus Christ. We're given the Holy Spirit to move in us and to help us through these moments where we need to forgive others in our lives just as our Father has forgiven us the transgressions that we have done. See, we can be people that resent. Resentment means holding on to your side of the story. What if we were to trade resentment for sympathy, which is trying to understand the other side of the story. We can be people that hate. Hate is, is uh, continuing to dislike with hostility. What, what if we trade hate for forgiveness? We can be people that abandon others. Abandonment means I'm done with you. I don't want to see you or talk to you again. What if we traded abandonment for peace? which says, let's find a way to work this out. See, if we look in 1 Peter 3, 8, it says, Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. See, we need to be people that are sympathetic towards each other, right? And walking through things with each other. So that means when you hurt, I hurt. When you feel something, I feel something. When it affects you, it affects me. That we are sympathizing with each other. 
We should be people that love each other as brothers and sisters. Now, I know this isn't a good example sometimes. My kids don't love each other sometimes. I feel like it. Well, deep down they might, but they fight all the time. But he uses this example as brothers and sisters that we should love each other as brothers and sisters, as family. We need to be tender-hearted towards each other and keep a humble attitude towards each other. And see, that's definitely not always the easiest thing to do, is it? There are times in our lives where we don't want to do this. None of these are easy, but if we're to be imitators of our Father, if we're supposed to be like our Father, He's the perfect example of all of these, this mercy and grace that He's shown us, we're supposed to show others mercy and grace even when it's hard, even when somebody's hard to love, right? There's many people in our lives that are hard to love, hard to show mercy towards, but we're called to be imitators of Jesus in the way that we show people mercy, grace, and love, even when they don't deserve it. The second thing I want to see is that we are the focus of His love, that we're the focus of His love. If we look in, in the second part of verse 8 and 11, it says, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. When I think about this phrase, slow to anger, what does that even mean? When we think of women, I'm not being stereotypical here, just hang with me. But when we think of women, women really show their feelings, right? Most women. But women really, really have a, a way of showing their feelings and how they feel, and, and they express themselves better than men, I think. And then, and then we think about men. Men may have more difficulty in, in expressing themselves or showing their feelings. I think a lot of times we, we show our feelings, but in the wrong way. Like, we go to anger, right? We express our feelings through anger in the way that we say something or the way that we act or, or maybe the way we just respond to something. That's why I feel like a lot of moms are like, wait till your dad gets home, right? Why? What's the difference? Is it just that we put fear in our children? But I think like this anger part that, that I look at, this is not a type of, of posture that we are to take with those around us. See, the Father gives us a perfect example of what it means to be slow to anger, that He's slow to anger, but also He's abounding in steadfast love, that He is firm and unwavering in His love for us, that just as you're driving down the road and, and you hit those rumble strips, it tells you to get back in the lane, right? It reminds me that God doesn't hit the rumble strips. That He's unwavering, He's unswerving, that He's steadfast in His love for you and for me. That, that He's steadfast in that. He's consistent. He doesn't swerve. So much so that it says as high as the heavens are above the earth. That, that's a long way, right? meaning that His love never ends for us. It's immeasurable. That, that's a lot of love, I think. If we're supposed to imitate this, what does it look like in our lives? When I think of that, what it means to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the person that comes to my mind is my mom. My mom, 
man, she was or is steadfast. She's slow to anger. Man, she had to deal with us four boys. That's enough in itself. And then to deal with my dad on top of that. But she was slow to anger when we were kids. I remember that, man. She would try to come alongside us and, and tell us, hey, you're not supposed to do this and, and be steadfast in her love. And, and although, man, we, we treated her horribly, yet she loved us unconditionally, that she never wavered. She, she still to this day never wavers, that she prays for each one of her children every day, that, that she is steadfast. If you know my mom, you know that she will pray for you, that she will love you, she will care for you. That she's steadfast in her love, slow to anger. Look how John puts it in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are not just the beneficiaries of His love. We are also the focus of His love. When we read this, and when we hear this, we should ask ourselves, who are the beneficiaries of our love? What is the focus of your love? See, there's a lot of things in this world that can get the focus, right? There's a lot of things that can steal our love, your hobbies maybe. Maybe it's fishing or hunting or working out or vacations or whatever it may be. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's positions or status or pay or getting to the next level that has your attention, that has your focus, that has your love, or is it your home? Is it your family? Is it your friends? Who or what is the beneficiary of your love? Is it those around us, our families, friends, co-workers, people that are hard to love? See, we're called to love one another in the same way that our Heavenly Father loves us we're called to be imitators of Him. The third thing I want to see is that we are the recipients of His compassion. In verse 13 and 14 it says, As a, a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers what we are, that we are dust. How many of you struggle with compassion here? Think about that. What even is compassion? I love this definition where it says, to recognize the suffering of others and then take action to help. To recognize the suffering of others and then to take action and help, to show compassion towards someone. In the Old Testament, we see that God had a chosen nation, the nation of Israel. Uh, these were His people, and because they were His people, He showed them grace and favor in many different unique ways. But when we look at, at the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they constantly took it too far. 
by becoming literally entitled, right? Rather than focusing on the outward and living as a community in, in a way that basically constantly pointed attention to God or pointed people to God and not themselves, they turned it to an inward which left them feeling superior. See, they thought God's compassion was only for them. They thought it was just for themselves, and see, that's not the truth. It's for everyone. And when we look at compassion in our lives, it should never be limited to just ourselves, to our families, to our friends, inward. See, our compassion should be for all people, for all people in all places at all times, in the same way that God showed us compassion, we're supposed to model it for the people that we don't want to show compassion towards. For the people that are are really hard to love, maybe, or or hard to handle, those are the people that God calls us to have compassion for. One writer puts it this way, compassion literally means to suffer together. Among emotion uh, researchers, it is defined as the feeling that arises when you are confronted with with another's suffering and feel motivated to uh, to relieve that suffering. I had the opportunity to go to Haiti. See, a little history on me. I, I don't know about you guys, but kids are disgusting, right? Like, I mean it in the nicest way. When you see a kid that just has snot rolling down their face, like, it's just coming, right? And it's like, it's there. Like, how do they live like that? Like, I, I was at an ice cream parlor uh, yesterday with, with a bunch of little kids, and, and we're sitting there, and there's, like, they're eating ice cream, but like they're not eating it, they're painting their face with it, right? And there's ice cream all over their hands, and there's ice cream on their face, and then they, they get done, and they just go play, and there's dirt stuck to their hands, and they're licking their fingers still, and it's like, you are disgusting. Like, all kids, I'm sorry, they're disgusting. And I love kids, don't get me wrong. But when they're little, sorry, I mean, we got a kid in here, but, but when they're little, it's just like... Why do you do it? Maybe he can explain it to me. I don't know. Anything for me? He's hiding on me now. But kids, and I have this, this like thing about me that I'm like, I don't want to touch that kid. Like even my own kids, I was like, when they were little and snotty, I'm like, my wife's like, can you wipe his nose? And, and you have the parent that will take their finger and like, and then they're like, Right? And I'm like, what did you just do? Like, why would you even think of doing that? It's disgusting. But I had the opportunity to go to Haiti several times. And when you go to Haiti, um, there's such a poverty level there, right? And and I remember being there for the first time. And and I went and we went to this remote village up in the mountain. And and we were walking around this village. And and I don't know if the village was a no-pants village. I don't know. But every kid didn't have pants on. I thought it was odd. It was just a weird thing. But, but we're walking around this village, and these kids want to cling to you, right? And so me being this, like, phobia, I'm like, oh, gosh, man, they're, whew, I'm going to do this, right? And so I, I get down on the ground. I'm, I'm kneeling, and these kids are like, I'm talking 20 kids around me, and they're all, like, you know, touching me and hanging on me and all this. And then all of a sudden, I feel one kid climb up onto my shoulders, and he's on... <laughs> He's on my back, okay? Legs over, on my shoulders. And again, I want to remind you, no pants. 
And so I'm sitting there and I'm going, Lord, I don't know what this is and I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. But I remember walking through that and loving those kids. And I remember one day I'm walking down the village and I'm walking by this hut that was sitting there. And here's this little two-year-old boy. I'll never forget this image. Here's this little two-year-old boy. And he's sitting literally naked next to a house with nobody around. And he's got sores all over him on his lip and everywhere. And the flies are just all over him. And he's eating a battery. I don't know why. But he had this double-A battery. I'll never forget it. And he's chewing on it. And he's maybe a two-year-old kid. And I remember there was something in me that just was like overpowering the fear. And I just reached down and picked this little boy up and held him. And I took the battery because he probably shouldn't be eating it. But I remember holding him with all those sores. And I remember for the first time in my life, I understood what God's compassion for me was that he, he loves me so much. And I remember holding that child, and, and eventually we found the mom, and, and, and I guess it's normal to leave your two-year-old next to the road by a hut. I don't know. She was like, why are you holding my son? I'm, I'm like, I, I don't know. I had compassion on it, on your son. So, But I remember thinking through that and what it did to me and helped me understand what God's compassion means for us. When we think about God choosing to extend compassion or His grace and mercy on us, to individuals that we may not really like, to people that, that annoy us. When we think about what He does, he, he extends His compassion on them. What does that do to us? When we think about people that we may think don't really deserve it. Maybe it's the politician who has completely different views or maybe someone you don't trust because they lied to you. Maybe it's a person that was supposed to love you, but they didn't. They, they took advantage of you. They were abusive. See, there are many different people in this world that might not be very easy to love and it might be hard to show mercy and compassion towards them. But these are the people that God calls us to love and show compassion to. When he says, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Meaning, God knows all. He knows everything about you. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly, your failures, your, your, um, your, your, your best things about you. He knows everything about you. He knows your frame. See, he even knows that we're dust, right? We are all called to be people of compassion in the same way that God has shown us who didn't deserve it, compassion and love and mercy. And here's the crazy thing. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of trying to do this, in the midst of trying to attempt to show compassion to others, see, the bad thing is, is that Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to come into your life and steer you the other way, to take you off the road, to take you off that, in that rumble strip. He wants to get you away from that. See, Satan wants to destroy you. He would like nothing less than for marriages to crumble. He would like for nothing less than, than friendships to die, for families to fall apart, for division to come into the church. 
See, he's seeking who he may destroy. So we don't fight against flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6 tells us, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We don't fight against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. See, Satan doesn't want you to have compassion on anyone. He doesn't want you to love others in the way that God loved us. Man, as fathers, we have to stand firm against the enemy. We have to stand firm in our faith against the enemy and be guided by the Holy Spirit in our lives. And let me encourage you, as fathers, as dads, we have the Holy Spirit, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, and you're a believer, that we have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us to guide us and move us and help us to lead our families well. Are we always going to be perfect? No. We all have failures. We're going to mess up. We're going to get angry. But are we forgiving? Are we asking for forgiveness? Are we moving and giving grace and mercy where we should and love? And we do this by knowing we are the beneficiaries of God's mercy. We are the focus of his love, and we are the recipients of his compassion. As you live in the power of the Holy Spirit, man, let's imitate the ways our Heavenly Father in our home and in the world around us. Let's be imitators of God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much that, Father, you're a good Father. Lord, you have given us the ultimate example of what it means to be a dad. What it means to love unconditionally, God, that, that we are the recipients of your love, that we experience your mercy and your grace in our lives, that we are failures. Yet, God, you have mercy and grace on us. You love us so much that you sent your son to die for us that we can have the free gift of salvation. Father God, I thank you for that. I thank you for your mercy and your love. I thank you that, God, we can experience that fully. God, I pray that each one of us would go out and love others, be imitators of Jesus this morning, Lord. God, that we would love those around us that are hard to love, that we would have compassion on those that are maybe don't deserve compassion, Lord, that we would suffer with each other, that we would experience life with each other, God. It's not easy. But God, I pray that we as the church would be at the front lines, that we would love those that are unlovely. Lord, we, just, we praise you this morning, and we ask all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.